0: All right, we're recording. We're going to try to get through um, chapter 6 tonight. Uh, just to give you a little preview so you know, uh, I think we'll finish 2 Corinthians sometime toward the end of, of uh, January. We're taking the 21st and the 28th off, so the week before Christmas, the week between Christmas and New Year's. Those two Wednesdays we're taking off. Um, and then, <clears throat> after we finish 2 Corinthians, we've decided to do some topical stuff. And we're going to start with, I haven't figured it out yet completely, but it'll be four to six weeks, very deep dive in spiritual gifts. We just sort of brushed over them in 1 in Corinthians. But we're, gonna, we're talking about going into a deep dive on spiritual gifts. We're having a lot of people ask questions about it. And we're thinking we're going to even end with a spiritual gift assessment. So if you're interested in taking it and seeing if you can manipulate the spiritual gift test. <laughs> <you can. laughs> so anyway, uh, so we're going to do that. Um, we have some other topics, too. We'll mix in some books in the midst of that as well. If you're interested, and some of you are in this room, uh, the Tuesday morning Bible study reading um, We are celebrating the fact that we are done with numbers and uh, we've moved on to Deuteronomy. And uh, after Deuteronomy, we're just gonna keep going through the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, And then before we do the prophets, uh, we're gonna go and do the New Testament letters. We've done the Gospels and the Book of Acts, but we're gonna go and do the New Testament letters and Revelation, and then we'll come back and finish with the prophets. And then we're just gonna start the whole thing all over again. And I think the timing of that could work out well because um, uh, we're going to do Revelation on Sunday mornings next fall. I don't know if you know that, but we have our preaching calendar set, and so we thought um, the book of Revelation would be a good book to study uh, about a year before the 2024 elections. We think that would be really fun. So anyway, um. yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, we're idiots. Okay, let me, just for context sake, let's start at uh, chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We think more highly of Christ now that we know exactly who Jesus is, instead of just regarding him as some crazy person. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting uh, us to us the message of reconciliation. So there's a responsibility that we have once we come to Christ to also then be ambassadors for Christ, purveyors of uh, the gospel. But it's interesting, in chapter 6... We're going to have a discussion question tonight. Isn't that exciting for those of you that like to speak publicly? uh, That's going to ask how it is that we can become obstacles as Christians, how we can become obstacles to the gospel because Paul talks about that. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I don't think he can say it any more succinctly than that. He's calling people to Christ. For our sake, he made him to be be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become uh, the righteousness of God. And then he moves right into chapter uh, six, and we need to understand again that Paul is not onto a new thought when he goes to chapter six. That chapter six is an arbitrary division that was placed there in the 13th century by somebody trying to give uh, sort of a GPS system for the Bible for people who who didn't have the Bible memorized, a way to be able to look things up. Nevertheless, uh, they didn't apparently study context and continuity of argument well enough to understand how that might break things up and make people uh, sort of read Scripture not in the most <coughs> beneficial way possible. When you see a new chapter, you assume he's done, the author is done with one thing and moving on to another. But here he just, He just takes this idea of reconciliation and salvation to a higher and more personal level. So 10 verses to get us started. It's a long slog, but let me read it and we'll come back and spend some time unpacking it. Working together with him, then, with God, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Uh, We'll talk about that. For he says, in a favorable time I listen to you, And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. We're going to read that Old Testament reference there, especially since it's coming from a passage of Scripture that we're going to actually study on Sunday mornings for nine weeks, um, starting in February of 2023. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit. Until you get to the Holy Spirit, that kind of sounds like a hockey game, but at any rate, it's the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and by the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. We are treated as unknown and yet we are well known. We are treated as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed. We're treated as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We're treated as poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. So what does it mean to receive Uh, God's grace in vain there's actually four ways that I'll mention three right up front before we go to that Old Testament reference and the fourth will come in a minute but the first one is to uh, first of all is to be somebody who um, has been saved but then turns around and begins to criticize how God chose to save us so you can you can go into the question of whether or not a person who does that is really truly saved that's between them and God. But I run into that a lot. People who would call themselves Christians but then uh, be disappointed or discouraged or even criticize the way God chose to save us. I've heard, I've heard the crucifixion of Christ actually described as child abuse by the father because he would put his son through that in order for us to have salvation. Um, it's, it's, it's somebody that provides you with something gives you the greatest gift uh, in the world. And then and then it's kind of like, and so what have you done for me lately? And I didn't like the way you did it the first time. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like that. So criticizing how God chose to save us. I run into that a lot. It happens a lot of, uh, all the time too. Uh, using grace as a license to sin. So Paul talks a lot about that in the book of Romans, that, you know, if I'm under grace, I might as well just go ahead and sin and and live this life of sin because I'm, I'm covered. Well, that's not exactly the correct perspective on grace. Grace should engender gratitude and thankfulness that we would try to then live a life that's pressing into Christ and to the, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then third, openly criticizing those who bring the gospel, those who preach and serve. So that's another way to receive God's grace in vain all three of these things the corinthians were known to be doing but you look at verse uh, 2 in a favorable time i listened to you and in a day of salvation i have helped you this is not just some random verse from the old testament that paul is quoting but when there's a new testament quotation whether it's in quotes or it's just embedded in the narrative and and you know the old testament and you're reading along and you say hey that's something from the old testament you know, in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul says towards the end of that little Christ hymn that he does in chapter, in verses 5 through 11, when he says uh, that every knee shall bow and every tongue should confess, confess, it's not in quotations. It doesn't appear to be a quotation of the Old Testament. But in fact, you find that in the book of Isaiah. And you find it in the book of Isaiah in this area that we're actually going to go to right now. So when Paul quotes this little Isaiah verse, which happens to be Isaiah 49:8, he's not just quoting that verse. The reader understands that what Paul is doing is he's quoting the entire context of that passage. That when they hear that verse, Isaiah 49:8, they think of Isaiah 49, 1 through 10. And what Isaiah 49, 1 through 10 is, is, is um, what Isaiah the prophet is telling the people of Israel by God telling him, he's saying, you're in exile in Babylon, but you have been punished enough for your rebellion, and um, y- you're still in Babylon, but you need to know that I'm coming to save you. I am coming back now, and your salvation is at hand. I'm a God of, of covenant and promise, and everything's going to be all right. You're going to be brought out of darkness and into uh, light. So let me just read those uh, verses. Isaiah 49, 1 through 10. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. This is Isaiah, the prophet, uh, telling uh, the people about what God is saying. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You're my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength on uh, for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is in the Lord my re- and my recompense with God, my God. And now sa- the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant And to bring Jacob back to Him—that's a reference to bringing the Israelites back from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild uh, uh, Israel, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, gathered to God. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, "It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of of Jacob, and and to bring back the uh, preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations." Thus my salvation may reach the end of the earth. The fact that it looked like everything was over with. You were conquered and crushed and you were carried away into exile. For 70 years you had to live in Babylon. Everybody's saying this game is over. There's no way they can come back now. And yet God goes and rescues them. How does he rescue them? Through Cyrus, the king of Persia. They invaded Babylon but that's how the Jews then ended up getting released if you're any sort of a football fan I'm not much of one but I do know this story uh, I think it was Super Bowl 49 um, the Patriots were playing the Falcons does anybody remember that game a couple of you okay midway through the third quarter the Falcons were up 28 to 3 this game was over they were laughing at the Patriots. They had them dead and buried. You all know what happened, right? Patriots came back and tied the game and won it in overtime. Okay, now, I know I'm comparing the Patriots to God, but you understand what I'm trying to say here. And, and there are some people in our congregation that would love that and others that would ask the, the elders to remove me as pastor for talking about the Patriots. But that's, that's the idea, though. Uh, th- there's no way the Israelites should have come back from this. But this is the point of Isaiah 40 through 55 is that this is God having the greatest comeback in the history of the world here. Um, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One to the deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And there you start to see there's beginning, the, beginning uh, beginnings of the allusions to the suffering servant, to the Messiah to come. And what Paul is doing is he's quoting this here to try to explain to the Corinthians, once again, you guys are in trouble. You're doing a lot of wrong things, and I'm trying to correct you. But what you need to understand is that God is a God of faith, uh, of faith, He's a God of grace, and when you return to him, he's not going he's, he's to punish you, but when you return to him, he's going he's to show you mercy and love and, 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 re, and, and redemption and restoration, and it's going to be good. That, that's the whole point of him uh, giving us that quote in verse 2. So then you move into, sorry, I've got to move my stuff. So then you, w- one other thing that Paul is trying to say, and this is the other thing that um, the Corinthians are doing when it when it comes to receiving grace in vain, which is the fourth item. Uh, Paul is also trying to help them understand the importance of receiving uh, God's favor, even when it's costly to them. In other words, they're going to have to humble themselves to come back and say, yeah, OK, you are a God of promises and covenant and grace. Uh, but I will tell you, that's kind of the part that we hate, again, as Christians. We really want the favor of God without the inconvenience. Can I get an amen? amen. Don't we? Yeah. You know, it's, there's that uh, section in Deuteronomy. I don't know if it's, oh, it's not in 6 because we just read it. So it's, I think it's in Deuteronomy 28 um, where God says, I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse the blessing if you follow my statutes and my law, the curse if you don't, okay? So Schrader, I love the way Schrader used to teach this. He would put it up on an overhead projector. Anybody remember those? <laughs> put it up on an overhead projector, and he would have these, he'd say, he'd have these arrows going, um, uh, follow his commands and statutes, blessing. Don't follow him, curse. And then he would draw an arrow that says, don't follow them to blessing. He said, that's what we want. We, we want to not follow them and still get the blessing. Okay. The Corinthians were in that, bag, uh, that, that wagon. That's, that's what they wanted. And that, again, is another picture of, of receiving God's grace in vain, is, is having the joy of salvation without any of the cost. If you've ever read um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that his famous pithy little quote is, uh, uh, grace is free, but it's not cheap. Okay, so Paul says at the end of the, verse 2, you've got to stop this nonsense, uh, receive God's favor, enjoy it, take it for what, is it, what it is, and quit trying to manipulate it and be in charge of it. And we often need that correction as well. So back to the rest of these first 10 verses. In verse 3, Paul writes, "...we put no obstacle in anybody's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry." I would say it's certainly helpful to try to do ministry in a way that does not become an obstacle to other people receiving Christ. That's a good thing. But there's another reason Paul writes this here. There are already hundreds of other obstacles to the gospel and to ministry without any one of us Christ followers also becoming an obstacle. So, my best Dwight Schrute impression. Question. Okay, there's actually two questions, but I'll ask them one at a time. But how can Christians become an obstacle to the faith? Anyone want to volunteer a way that we become an obstacle to somebody else seeing the faith, the gospel? Have any of you ever felt like you were an obstacle? Yeah. What was that? yeah so we become an obstacle when we do Jesus plus, plus. and we don't even realize we're not, most of the time we don't even realize we're doing it, but we do it and later on in this um in this letter in this book, when you get into chapter ten, uh, and Paul starts talking about the interlopers that had invaded the church at Corinth and we're talking smack about paul um, he 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 says one of their problems is is that they they they're saying yeah, Jesus is great, but you can't really be saved unless you also do this and this and this and this. So that becomes an obstacle. You said self-righteousness. So I, I'm I'm glad you said it cuz that's never been my problem, but I'm glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it. Okay, so here's something that I think goes along with self-righteousness and I have experience in this, argumentativeness too. Right? So, you know, argue somebody into the kingdom. You know, it's, it's up to me. It's not up to the Holy Spirit. So you become an obstacle in that way, too. I'm not saying you don't present. I'm just saying, good grief. Um, uh, Ryan Arneson, who used to be a pastor at uh, Tempe, Redemption Tempe, um, he had developed this methodology. He was an expert at this. He developed this methodology where all he ever did was ask people questions. And he would get them to think about their positions in life their worldviews but he wouldn't argue with their worldview he would just try to get them to explain their worldview and by continually asking questions very often he could get them to figure out that their worldview made absolutely no sense and it wasn't consistent and it was hypocritical and so he's kind of using Aristotle's enthymeme in the sense that he's getting the other person to draw their own conclusions they're arguing for themselves so, those are some ways that Christians can become obstacles. Um, here's the other question What are the ups- other obstacles, the world's obstacles to the gospel? I think I'm, I've got some answers here, but come on, you've got to have some answers, right? Well, the world thinks it's self sufficient. The world thinks it's self sufficient. Go further with that, though. The world, culture would tell you you're self sufficient. Yeah. You can figure it out yourself. I'm responsible to figure it out for myself but certainly I'm not going to suffer any consequences if I'm if I figure it out incorrectly. Well, everyone makes mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody's perfect. See, we understand biblical theology. We know nobody's perfect. <laughs> what else? What are some other obstacles? Anybody? Haven't you been told your whole life that you can have fulfillment and and happiness and success in things that once you attain them, you're like, well, that was nice, but, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, all those, it's all those athletes' stories, you know. Um, Martina Navratilova, who won, I don't know, 18 majors. <coughs> and she once said in an interview, she said, You know, every time I win a major, I'm elated for three days and then I'm depressed for three weeks. And, uh, oh my gosh, um, uh, Sally Field, when she finally won her Oscar, okay? And then she had an interview afterwards and she said, winning that Oscar didn't do for me what I thought it would do. And and I'm not talking about like, oh, now the movie deals are rolling in. She thought that that would be it, that she would her life would be complete. And she's sitting there going, that little gold statue didn't quite do it. You know? And, and yet, and yet, here's the tension that we live in, okay? That sounds like uh, an anti-ambition message, right? It sounds like a complacency. Complacency is good. We can be more Christ-like if we're complacent, okay? So go out into the marketplace and underwhelm everybody. <laughs> That's not what we're saying. That's not at all what we're saying. The greatest teaching in the world on contentment was done by Paul, who I would argue is one of the most ambitious people who ever lived. It's just that he understood how to put things into perspective. So the the world keeps telling us, by the way, the world has now determined, and this is not me speaking, this is just all the stuff that I've been reading lately, from scholars mostly mostly scholars who are not Christians, okay? In fact, one of them is an atheist, a proud atheist. And they're saying the world is jacked up right now because they have convinced us, the world, the culture has convinced us, that ultimate fulfillment is found in happiness, and happiness is found in your sexual identity. And and your sexual identity must be affirmed by everybody, in order for you to have that fulfillment of happiness, that's why we're in the mess that we're in today. These aren't Christian authors saying this. Okay? Isn't that something? It's Douglas Murray, atheist, homosexual, who's written books about this. Brilliant, too. Brilliant, yes. Yeah, he was... Uh, he was he's, he, okay, here you go. Progressive, leftist, atheist, gay guy, and, and uh, I think it was Middlebury College in w- Massachusetts, Vermont. Vermont, one of the most liberal schools in the world, okay, uh, he was scheduled to speak there in 2017, they shut it down. They we don't want him coming and speaking here, okay, <laughs> it's amazing, it's amazing. Anyway, all right, moving on. Now again, concerning these verses, this is a hard call and I'm really just talking to myself here. I'm sort of badgering myself. Y'all are just voyeurs, but if you want to participate, jump on board, please. But, but, but here's just one of the things Paul is saying in these, in these verses after verse 3. He's saying, if you're going to serve the Lord and proclaim the gospel, here are the things that you must be willing to endure. All of those that huge list of things that he talked about. So genuine hardship and suffering. You have to, in the midst of genuine hardship and suffering, you have to try by the power of the Spirit to live a life, though not perfect, but live a life that's focused on integrity and above reproach. And you have to be willing to persevere no matter what your personal experiences are. So again, reading through um, Exodus and the Pentateuch uh, lately, just the reminder of how For hundreds of years, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, please rescue us from this slavery in Egypt. These taskmasters are terrible. We'll go anywhere and do anything to get out of here. So God sends the 10 plagues. Moses leads them out, splits the Red Sea. I mean, could you imagine going through all this stuff? Wow, God's kind of cool, you know. And then they get out into the desert And 15 minutes later, what's happening? Well, this kind of (laughs) sucks. We had all those onions and cucumbers and leeks. I don't know why they wanted leeks, but they had all that stuff in Egypt. We should go back. Why did you bring us out here so that we, they're telling Moses, why did you bring us out here to kill us so that we die, you know? So then they get manna. We're tired of this manna. Sure like some meat. And then they get the meat, you know, the birds that are dropping out of the air. And, and they just keep complaining. And then finally they organize a coup against Moses and Miriam. And then some really bad things happen. <laughs> you know, God took care of that too. But it's just amazing. We pray and ask and beg and scream and yell for this stuff. And then we get it and we're like, that's ah, not good enough. And you didn't do it right. And the timing was off. okay. So, by the way, that's why I I really liked Bruce Almighty. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a cheesy movie, but good grief, there was some great theology in that movie, (laughs) you know? And, of course, who better than Morgan Freeman to play God? So, and they couldn't have gotten a better idiot to play the, anyway, so... um, (laughs) So then Paul clearly says in verse 4, as he lists all these things, he says, we've done and endured all these things. I'm not asking you to do something that we haven't done. And so now you're going to have to understand that you need to step up and you're going to have to go through this as well. If we're going to be God's people, we will be blessed. There is favor to be had. You know, Deuteronomy says six times that if you follow God, things will go well with you. But also you need to understand that because of sin... There will also be challenges and there will be unpleasantness. The Israelites wanted liberation from Egypt. They got it, but then because it wasn't perfect in their eyes, they complained. They are a picture of every person who has ever lived. Paul makes the same case to the Corinthians. So let me, let me reread verses 8b through 10, and then we'll finish those. Ah... Uh, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, we are unknown and yet are well known, we are dying and behold we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That sounds like the world today as well. The world is constantly accusing the church and the Christians of being imposters, of of, sort of dying to themselves for no good reason, forsaking all that life has to offer, and the world looks at Christians as sort of an enigma, that's something that's seen but unknown, a mystery. And yet, we are called to rejoice in the salvation that we have and to live as new creations, which is what Paul just talked about in chapter 5. I will tell you, the number of people that I have baptized over the last 23 years who have the same or similar testimony not all of them exactly the same of course but many of them it's it's enough of a theme that I've, I've noticed it it's quite eye-opening and here's kind of that it's sort of a paraphrase of that testimony that they have you know I was under the impression that the Christian faith was goofy and out of touch and untenable but then I quit listening to the world and I investigated it for myself And then they come to Christ. The Holy Spirit uses that to open their eyes, to open their heart, to open their minds. And Paul then summarized all of this with strict instruction and correction to the Corinthians in verses 11 through 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return... I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul says, uh, out of love, we have laid it all on the line. Yes, we've rebuked and corrected you, but we've also affirmed the salvation that you have and God's love that he has for you. And now I'm reminding you once again, your problem is not us. You keep wanting to blame us for all your problems. Problem's not me, Paul says, not me, but rather your problem is your own affections. I I will tell you, I've, I've actually spent weeks just noodling on verse 12. You are not restricted by us, Paul says, but you are restricted in your own affections. You and I are like the Corinthians in this one clause, restricted in our own affections, probably more than anywhere else in this book. The world has told us now for decades that it's wrong, even harmful, it's even shameful, for us to try to control or tamp down or otherwise dismiss our affections, our desires, our truth, our own understanding of pleasure. And how would that be going for us? <laughs> it, it really isn't working. Now, I get it. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not naive. Okay? P- getting this stuff can be really fun. Sin can also be fun, by the way. Have you noticed that sin can be fun? Anybody notice that? You know, Schrader used to say, if you're not having fun when you're sinning, then you're not doing it correctly. (laughs) Okay. The problem is is that that's only for a season. That's the problem. Uh, The cycle begins to get to you. And we see that cycle in the Old Testament with the Israelites, of course, the big historical cycles but we live those cycles out all the time in our life too these little mini cycles we're with God we start to walk away we go deep into sin we start to return we're back with God these cycles that we go through and God can use those cycles for our sanctification that's a good thing but it's our affections that draw us into those cycles so We pursue and and get these things. We're still not satisfied. We're still not fulfilled. Often uh, in these pursuits, we cause pain for other people in our lives. Um, We become detached from anything that's real. What um, one Christian author would describe as uh, what should be our true north, which is Christ. So he's using that whole compass uh, illustration that John Stone Street also uses Stone Street, he's the guy that said, we live in a culture today where if you were dropped in a 100,000 acre forest in the middle of it with a blindfold on, you took the blindfold off, you had no idea where you were or what direction was where, and somebody handed you a compass to help you understand how to get out of there so you know where true north is, but the problem with the compass is that it's always pointing at you, so you're always going to be lost. If your compass is always pointing at you and not at true north, you're always going to be lost. We, we are denying what is objectively true, and, and in short, it's leading us to, to disaster. And the thing that troubles me the most about this is the number of Christians who buy into this ideology. Who believe, this is called syncretism, who believe you can meld the gospel with this idea that, there is, that you have your own truth. Okay? That's called syncretism. That's been going on for a couple thousand years. It's nothing new. Uh, Our heart, again, I'm quoting Tom a lot tonight. Our hearts, as Tom used to say, our hearts are little idol factories. (laughs) And most often, the idol that we are manufacturing is ourselves. So what gets in the way of our joy, of our happiness, of our fulfillment, our contentment, our purpose, even in the way of some of our achievements, is our own misplaced affections and desires. Paul even goes so far as to tell the Corinthians, and by extension us, that it's like speaking to children, because we can't seem to tamp down the, the affections that lead us into trouble. Our inability to control our misplaced affections is a challenge that only a child would not be able to corral. Again, not anti-ambition. It's just an understanding of where your priorities are. So where does Paul turn? Let's find out, last part of chapter six verses uh, 14 through 18: "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Balal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So we get pretty hypersensitive in the church about how this passage here is specifically, specifically about if you're a Christian, you should not marry an unbeliever. And that's true. You're asking for heartache if you do that. I've been in the midst of a lot of those situations, you know. And, and I get it. I mean, I understand it. I've heard the arguments, you know, but... You don't understand. He's so handsome and he's so nice. He's such a good person. And he has not just a job, but he has a good job. And he's this close. And then the argument from the other side, but she's just so hot. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're a little thick. Anyway, just leads to heartache. You know, I, I, I think Jackie's beautiful, but what attracts me to her more than anything is who she is in Christ. So we get pretty hyped up about this idea of being unequally yoked. It's about marriage. Okay, fine. But in context, Paul is actually talking about something much broader. He's talking about a Christian yoking themselves with any sort of worldly thing that is contrary to the gospel. Anything. And by yoking yourself to it, meaning to serve it, to worship it, to be in partnership with it. Corinthians wanted to appropriate a lot of the temple worship and sacrifice into the church. The pagan temple uh, methodologies and things that they did, in, they wanted to bring that stuff into the church. Okay? So that included the chaos around food. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians. Perversion around sex. It's been throughout this entire study. Uh, pride and intimidation around spiritual gifts. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians. And this continued adoration for false gods. He says, our bodies are gods, don't sully them by marrying them to the things of the world that are decidedly anti-gospel. Of course, we're in the world. Of course, we're going to be interacting with the world. But to be yoked to it is where the problems come. And then you look at, you just reread verses 14 through 16. You can't say that he's just talking about marriage. This is a very broad context And then he proclaims, we are the temple of the living God. And he quotes from the Old Testament to solidify his argument and remind us of God's desire for us. God's good desire. So you look at uh, the last half of 16 and all of 17 and 18. Those verses are set off. That means it's Old Testament poetry. He's quoting there. These verses are actually, Paul used to do this a lot. Jesus did this some too. Uh, he's not quoting from one passage here. He's, it's a conflation. In other words, he's picking uh, disparate verses and putting them together to form a kind of a narrative and to make his point. This is from Leviticus 26, Deuteron- sorry, Exodus 29, parts of Ezekiel and parts of Jeremiah. All of that is, is mixed in there in those verses. But I hope you see Paul's point. Our salvation and our favor from God does not commission us to mix righteousness with corruption rather our salvation our favor from God gives us the will the freedom and the strength to rest in him and to him in him alone and the Corinthians desperately needed to hear this and then Paul wraps up this admonishment in 7-1 and then he sort of turns to new issues in uh, uh, chapter 7 verse 2 But he's still going to be getting on the Corinthians. But chapter uh, 7, verse 1 is actually a wrap-up of everything he's talked about up until now. So I want to do that, and then we'll be done tonight. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, get unyoked from the world, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, because we have the promises of God, the hope of God, the salvation of God, the favor of God... We should be able to actually rid ourselves of these attachments to the things of the world that are only hindering our walk with the Lord and hindering our growth. By the way, this again just sounds so much like what God is trying to tell the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. You know, if you just stay away from that stuff and focus on me, life would be a lot easier for you. We, we, get, we get sucked into that. Um, this passage always reminds me of Hebrews twelve, one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, lay lay aside all of the stuff of the world that weighs us down, lay aside all the sin that clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's that discipline, the idea of discipline. It says, stop mixing in the pagan worship with the faith of Jesus. It's counterproductive and blasphemous. So now Paul begins to move on a little bit. And that's where we'll pick up next week. We'll start at 7-2. Let me pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for... Uh, Your word and its truth and how we get to read it and hopefully uh, sort of learn by the experiences of others so that we won't have to go through a lot of the stuff that the Corinthians had to go through. Uh, Give us the wisdom to be able to do that and give us the power and the strength by the filling of your Holy Spirit to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name.